We opened our service with a reading from the Gospel of John and I'd like to go back there for just a moment to begin our sermon. So please, if you would, uh, turn to John chapter 20 as well as to Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, John chapter 20 and Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to read a verse from John chapter 20, make some comments and then we'll go over to Isaiah chapter 53. But uh, before I go any further, I'm going to pray and commit our time of preaching to the Lord and ask for his help. Uh, Let us pray. Father, uh, we ask uh, humbly... Uh, Now that uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand uh, your word. I pray that you would help us to see your Son, our Saviour. That's who we need to see. I pray that you would uh, meet each one of us at our point of need and minister your grace to us. And this we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. In John chapter 20, the Apostle tells us that Peter and another, another unnamed disciple, and we believe it was John, upon hearing the report of Mary Magdalene, ran to the tomb where Jesus uh, had been buried. When they got there, uh, Peter went inside first, and then the other disciple. In verse 8, we're told that the other disciple saw that Jesus wasn't there, and he believed. Then in verse 9, John says this, and if you'd like to cast your eye there, John chapter 20, verse 9, For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. It seems as though John, and presumably Peter as well, believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, but they didn't understand the significance of his resurrection Uh, They didn't understand it in biblical terms. They didn't realise then and there that the scriptures said he would rise again. Now eventually they did, and that was the theme of our message last Sunday. Uh, When the Holy Spirit was given, then the disciples understood. Now the question that I want us to think about in our Easter sermon arises from John's assertion. He tells us that the resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was there all along, and the disciples missed it. So where was it? Where in the Old Testament did it say that the Messiah would rise again? Perhaps there are some verses in the Old Testament that come to mind, uh, probably those that were quoted by the apostles in the book of Acts. For example, both Peter and Paul quoted Psalm 16 verse 10 which says for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Peter clearly connects this Old Testament text to Jesus. Uh, In Acts chapter 2 he is preaching on the day of Pentecost he quotes this verse and then he says verses 31 and 32 he that's David seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in hell neither his flesh did see corruption this Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses Paul makes the same connection 
Acts chapter 13, verses 36 through 39. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. So obviously David wasn't talking about himself in the psalm. But he, referring to Jesus, whom God raised again, saw no corruption. Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. What a great gospel text. How the resurrection of the Messiah was there in Psalm 16. It's also in Psalm 22, often referred to as the Psalm of the Cross. But if you know the psalm, you know there is a turn. The protagonist cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's brought down to the dust of death. But then he's declaring God's name unto his brethren and praising God in the midst of the congregation. The narrator of the psalm moves from death to life. The resurrection of the Messiah was also spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And not in some obscure passage that only theology nerds know. (laughs) I think it's safe to say that most Christians are familiar with Isaiah chapter 53. It contains a vivid description of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And more than that, it explains the significance of his death. In fact... Some would argue that it contains the clearest explanation of the meaning of Jesus' death in the entire Bible. But it also speaks of his resurrection. Perhaps not quite as clearly, but it's there. And this is what we're going to focus on in this sermon. So please go back from the Gospel of John to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. Actually, I'm going to begin at chapter 52, verse 13, because that's where the passage begins. From chapter 52, verse 13, through to the end of chapter 53, we have one of the four servant songs. Songs that speak of the servant of the Lord. Songs that describe his character and his work. These are prophetic descriptions of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please follow along as I read Isaiah chapter 52, beginning at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up from up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. 
but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Or we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet... It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You don't need to have a degree in biblical interpretation to see in this text that the servant dies. Now the servant suffers inwardly. Uh, he experiences rejection, sorrow, Grief, humiliation, disrespect, loneliness. And he suffers outwardly, he suffers physically. He is smitten, wounded, bruised, chastised. And his suffering is unto death. Uh, let me point out some of the death language here. Verse 7, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Uh, the animals that go to the meatworks die. Uh, we have a meatworks just down the road at Casino, and uh, the cattle that are brought there usually don't survive. Uh, I suspect there's a 100% death rate. Verse 8, for he was cut off from the land of the living. Verse 9, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Uh, dead people are put in graves. Verse 12, he poured out his soul unto death. It's unmissable. The servant of the Lord, the one the Lord has chosen, the one the Lord delights in, dies. But this song says some other things about the servant that speak of him being very much alive. He dies, but he lives. Now, there are five statements in the text to this effect. I'm going to point them out and take a moment to reflect on each one. I'm going to take them slightly out of the order in which they appear because I want to land at a particular place. So here we go. The first and most obvious of these statements is in verse 10. There we see that the servant shall prolong his days. Now again, let me point out the contrast. Verse 10 speaks of the servant being made an offering for sin. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Now, sin offerings in the Old Testament were, for the most part, animals. 
The very poor in Israel were permitted to offer grain, but normally it was an animal, and the animal was killed. Its blood was shed, its body burned. Sin offerings did not survive. The servant is made an offering for sin by dying. We talked about that on Friday. God provided a lamb for us. A perfect sacrifice to take away our sins. The cross was the altar upon which that sacrifice was offered. The servant is made an offering for sin, but then almost immediately Isaiah says, he shall prolong his days. In the Old Testament, this is one of the things God would bless his people with if they kept the covenant. Length of days was a mark of divine favour and prosperity. This statement doesn't make sense unless the servant is alive. The second statement I want to draw your attention to is also in verse 10, uh, right at the end. There we're told that the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in the servant's hand. Now this refers to that which pleases the Lord, the will of the Lord, the work of the Lord. Isaiah says that it is going to prosper. It is going to advance and be successful in the hand of the servant. Now this could be looking back to the servant's death and what it accomplished. But given the context, I tend to think this is looking forward. The Lord has bruised him. The Lord has made his soul an offering for sin. And now looking forward, the pleasure of the Lord will be accomplished in this world by the servant's hand. He is the instrument The Lord has yet more to do through the power and activity of the Messiah and this doesn't make any sense if he's dead. If his hands are in the grave, if they've turned to dust, how can they prosper the pleasure of the Lord? The third indication in this passage that the servant dies and then lives is at the beginning of verse 12. There we see that the Lord will divide to him a portion with the great. The Lord does this because he died. Because the servant bore the sins of many. Look once again at the text. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now whatever this portion refers to, how can the Lord divide it to his servant if he's dead? How can the servant receive this portion if he's still lying in the grave? Clearly he dies and then he lives. According to one author, the words used here are taken from the custom of distributing the spoils of victory after a battle. The word translated great in this verse can refer to people who are great in terms of strength or great in terms of number. I tend to think the second meaning is the one in view. And because we have the whole sweep of biblical revelation, I think we can say that this portion that is divided to the servant is what is referred to in Psalm 2 and in Revelation chapter 2 and in chapter 12 and in chapter 19. It's what the Father gives to the Son 
on account of his obedience. Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen, the nations, for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The servant, the Messiah, who by his death triumphed over sin and death and the devil, has been given all authority in heaven and in earth. He has been given the nations. They belong to him. And one day he will come in person to take up his portion. Revelation chapter 11 verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. This leads directly to the fourth statement that speaks of the resurrection. The Lord will divide to the servant a portion with the great. And then number four, the servant shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's what verse 12 goes on to say. The servant takes what he has received on account of his triumph and shares it with others. Now, I know I sound like a broken record, but how can he do this if he's dead? Now these are the spoils of his victory. He shares them with others. Those Isaiah calls the strong. Now I think given the language the prophet uses, language drawn from battle, the strong is a reference to those who are with the servant, those who are on his side. And again, because we have the full sweep of biblical revelation, I think we can say that these are those who trust in the servant. Those who acknowledge him as Saviour and Lord. These are the saints who will come with him when he returns in splendour. He shares with them the spiritual spoils of his triumph. A victory over sin and death and everlasting life. And he will share with them the earthly spoils of his triumph when he returns. Those who trust in him have a part in his kingdom now and in the future. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, the servant, Jesus Christ, says this, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall thou be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my Father. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now these statements all speak of the Messiah being very much alive. And we find them in the chapter in the Old Testament that has the most to say about his death. But that's not all. There's one more statement that I want to draw your attention to. I've left it to last because I love the way that it connects to us. In fact, it speaks of us. But please back up to verse 10. Notice that it says about halfway through that the servant shall see his seed. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. 
The servant shall see his offspring, his children. That's what the word means. How do we understand this? Jesus is the servant and he didn't have any children. I think Calvin helps us understand what Isaiah is referring to. He writes, Isaiah means that the death of Christ not only can be no hindrance to his having a seed, but it will be the cause of his having offspring. That is because by quickening the dead he will procure a people for himself whom he will afterwards multiply more and more. I think we're also helped by the great Baptist theologian John Gill. He writes, This refers to a spiritual seed and offspring, a large number of souls that shall be born again of incorruptible seed as the fruit of his sufferings and death. And he directs us to John chapter 12, verse 24, which says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Gill continues, This Christ began to see after his resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven, when great numbers were converted among the Jews, and after that the multitudes in the Gentile world. And more or less in all ages, ever since has he had a seed to serve him, and so he will in the latter days and to the end of time. The offspring of the servant are those to whom he gives life, spiritual life, everlasting life. And he, he gives that to those who believe in him, who trust in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In John chapter 6 verse 40, Jesus said this, And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The servant will see his seed. And not in the sense that God as a spirit sees. The servant is Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate. He is the Son of God and he is a human person. He will see his seed with the eyes of his humanity. To do this he had to move from death to life. He had to rise again from the dead and walk out of that tomb. He will see us one day with those eyes that smiled on the disciples as he stood in their midst. He will see us and we will see him with these eyes, with the eyes of our humanity because he has shared with us the spoils of his victory. Just as he triumphed over death and the grave, so will we. His resurrection is the power and the guarantee of our resurrection. In the words of an old spiritual, if you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. Now there's some excellent Pauline theology in that lyric. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 20 to 23. But now is Christ risen from the dead. He walked out of the grave. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, that's the key, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. He walked out of the grave and I'm walking too. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. When Jesus returns, my body will be resurrected and remade and glorified and so will yours if you belong to him. The servant shall see his seed. Dear brothers and sisters, we might not have had the privilege of peering into that empty tomb on resurrection morning. We may not have had the privilege of holding those nail-pierced hands as he stood in our midst. But we know he is alive and we are glad. We know the scriptures have been fulfilled and that makes all the difference. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. May God richly bless you in the grace, mercy and love of our risen Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.